Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today we're talking with Dennis Lehane. His 1994 debut novel, A Drink Before the War, won the Seamus Award for Best First P.I. Novel. He's gone on to write more than a dozen novels, winning numerous literary awards and some of the novels getting made into films that you know. Mystic River, directed by Clint Eastwood, Shutter Island by Scorsese, On Baby Gone, Live by Night, both by Ben Affleck. He's also had enormous success developing and writing for TV. He's written episodes for The Wire, Boardwalk Empire, Mr. Mercedes, and more recently Blackbird. Dennis, there's so much to talk about. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. So your drink uh, choice for today is Chopin vodka on crushed yes. ice. Yes, so on I, ice. I managed to... Uh, I'm just putting some ice. I think I'm going to go with a lot of ice on this. I managed to find a bottle of this. I'd never heard of this kind of vodka before. Well, it's funny because normally I, I go with um, uh, something called beluga, but it's it's Russian, so I got to support the uh, this is the Polish Ukraine. Okay, yeah. So all right, well, uh, vodka on ice is a strong car. I may, I may have to muscle this down a little bit, but I'm going to give it a shot. Well, take your time. It's sipping. It's about sipping it. You're sipping vodka. Yeah. See, that is good. That's good. Smooth. Mm-hmm. All right, I, I found a new vodka. I've been. I don't drink a lot of vodka, but when I do, it's usually Tito's, but I'm going to try this now. Okay. So starting at the beginning of Mr. Lehane, you're born. You're a New Englander, born in Dorchester, Mass., near Boston, yeah. youngest yeah. of five, and both your parents emigrated from Ireland. Yes. What, yes. Was, what, was, uh, the, what were the early days like in the Lehane household? It was, it was like being in Ireland. It was, um, we, we were surrounded by um, uh, my, my mother and my father's uh, siblings and in-laws. So they both came from enormous families. My father was uh, one of 18. My mother was one of 15. Wow. And a lot of them settled in Boston. They settled in the same area. And they would just get together. Well, we had, when I was a kid, my aunt lived upstairs. She lived on the second floor. And uh, and then there was just aunts and uncles all around. Um, cousins everywhere. My brother and I once figured out we had like 121st cousins at one point. Oh my God. I mean, was, it was it like nice. stickball in the streets and things like that? or what, what Well, no, stickball in the streets was with my friends, without a doubt. But the the sense of the Irish community, that was Friday nights, Saturday nights, Sundays. You know, you just were constantly going to each other's houses because we all lived in Dorchester. Yeah. So church was, every uh, Sunday? Tur- oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. Church every Sunday until we got old enough to sneak in and steal the bulletin. That was the, that was the move. So in those days, did you want to be a writer? Did you know this was uh, in your future? No, I didn't consider it a viable career option. I'll put it that way. I mm-hmm. I, will, I wrote I wrote since I was eight. And diaries uh, or or fiction, just fiction. And then, um, uh, then when I was fifteen, I wrote a novel, a uh, very bad one, uh, and. And then I started, I think it was around then that I started to take it a little bit more seriously. And then I wrote a short story my junior year. And this amazing teacher I had, this little Irish priest, uh, Larry Corcoran, said, um, you you should maybe consider taking this seriously. This is, you're quite good at this. And I was like, oh, okay. And so 
Then I uh, still tried to take safety majors because it just wasn't considered. I didn't know anybody who became a writer. I didn't know anything, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I remember being at Emerson College my first year where I was a major, for, uh, a major in journalism. And we went to this bar down the street because you could drink there when you were 18. And it was called Crossroads. And we were sitting in the bar and somebody pointed out and said, that guy down there, that's a writer. And it was Richard Yates who wrote Revolutionary Road. Mm-hmm. And he used to sit in Crossroads every day, just smoke cigarettes and drink and scribble, write. And he had an apartment above this, above it. That was the first writer who was ever pointed out to me. Wow. Was Dica- and, I know that was made into a film, too. Was DiCaprio yeah, yeah. in that? So yep, that's amazing. Yep. So you, you yep. I mean, right. weird Yeah, but Revolutionary Road is like a writer's writer's book. It's, a, it's one of the most famous books among writers. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, the writer's book. And... Um, but I didn't know that at the time. And then when I was 20, I'd already dropped out of two colleges. My parents were tearing their hair out. And I just said, you know, honestly, guys, I, I just feel like I should major. In, I should major in this. I should go try to be an actual writer. And they were like, you know, if you just get a degree, we'll be happy. <laughs> so so that was it. So then I went and uh, at 20 was when I made the major decision. I made the decision. And it was what was great about it was the lack of safety net. I will say. Were you sending off short stories to magazines or were you trying to get published no. at this time? No, I didn't start doing that until graduate school where yeah. I made it a requirement. Yes, yeah, so you, went, like you went to Florida International and got a, a that was my grad degree there, yeah. right? Grad I went school. to a little tiny college called Eckerd College for um, undergrad. And then I went to FIU for grad school and they um, they made it a requirement at one point to submit your story. And uh, I... I really, to this day, I don't like submitting because I don't like rejection. I don't deal with rejection well at all. So I got rejected by the, uh, I, I still remember, I got rejected by the New Yorker. And it was a handwritten note. And everybody said, you should frame that. It's handwritten. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's, we're we're in the wrong profession, guys. If you think it's great. If we're celebrating. It's handwritten. What did you do uh, with the note? Well, uh, the note, I, I think I threw it away. You threw it away, yeah. I'm pretty sure I just threw it away. What yeah, about that I first would... novel when you were 15? Do you still have that, or do you throw that away? I have a friend who claims she still has it. <laughs> is, it is it bad enough to be blackmail material, or is this going to be in the library papers one day? It's bad, yeah, it's bad. It was very bad. Um, but it's interesting that the ending of the book, my very first novel, is the is the location of the ending of the book that I have coming out in April. Oh, nice. Totally different books, but the clearly it stuck with me. Oh, cool. I, I want to talk about that one uh, in a bit. We'll, we'll get to it. I know yeah, the sure. new one is called sure. uh, uh, Small Mercies, right? Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about that a bit. But the debut novel I do want to talk about now, so that was 1994, yeah, sure. and uh, I know a bunch of folks – were sort of coming up in that early mid '90s period, like Harlan yeah. Coben, Lee Child, Michael Connolly, uh, all George sort of making your bones at the same time. Yeah. Did you see those guys around the festivals and the book events? Nonstop. I mean, we were the fir- we were the we were the poor struggling writers at that point, you know. So we would be at all these the you know there's this big mystery readers convention called BoxerCon. We would be at every BoxerCon. We mm-hmm. would be at Icon, which was private eye writers um, conventions. Um, and we were the ones looking up at the people like, you know, Westlake and Crace and and uh, uh, Patricia Highsmith and and um, trying to think Sue Grafton and being like, oh, that's you know, someday, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, but yeah, we were, you know, Harlan back then was paperback original. He was trying to get out of that ghetto. I remember that's that's a long time ago. Um, Lee had just published Killing Floor. I had just published Drink Before the War. George Pelicanos had just published The Big Blowdown. Michael was ahead of us. Connolly. Yeah. I was talking to one of these guys. I can't remember who it was, but uh, mentioned your name among the others, saying you, you almost sort of came up in a class together. That's how we looked at it. It was like a homeroom class. Like we were all kind of like, and we were very competitive in the best possible sense. I, I mean that in... Like it was like, oh, you, damn, damn you! You just did that. Now I gotta go. You just raised the stakes again and again and again. People just kept raising stakes on each other. I remember when uh, Michael published the poet. That was one of those. Oh God, damn! You know, now we gotta go beat that. You know, like yeah. it was a great, it was a great feeling. That's good. Uh, as, as, when the one-upsmanship continues like that, as long as you're not like trailing off behind everybody, which you were not. So, Mystic River in 03, 
is comes out as a movie and uh yeah. you know so you were yeah. you know you're grinding away but you're still a young guy in 03 when that comes out as a movie you're younger than 40 was that yeah. that must have been a fairly heady time to have have this going on no it was, it was all one when the book came out and that's when i feel like a rocket ship took off mm-hmm. everything changed right then because i didn't expect the book to be a success my publisher did i did not so from the time it took off through the publication of shutter island through the release of the film mystic river through the academy awards that was a three-year period Mm -hmm. and it felt like that three-year period i never got off the bus like it was just a or the it was just a it was very uh odd and strange and hard to get my head around several times was it were Uh, you able to work were you still writing during that period yeah i wrote shutter island during all that but i Mm -hmm. put my head down and just kind of pushed that out but it was it was a very strange time for somebody who never expected. I did never. I never expected the level of commercial success I had. Mm-hmm. I just. Expe- I thought I was too dark. I really did. I just thought, you know, I'm never going to be there. I'm never going to get on the best of all this. Yeah, you know? and the movie Mystic Rare was dark, but commercially successful. I mean, that was a great, yep. a great film, but yep. dark. Fact, I remember yes. uh, when I saw you at that writers festival some years ago. Um, Sean Penn was there, and mm-hmm. it seemed like you guys have maintained a friendship over the years. We, we, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call it a friendship, but we, we've maintained a very, uh, every time we run into each other, there's a, there's a kind of a joy to see each other. We like each other. Yeah. It's clear, you know, but we don't hang out. I mean, we live probably not too far from each other in LA, but it's not like we hang out. Yeah. Writers do the writer thing, actors do the actor thing. Yeah. It's like front of the house, back of the house, and the rest. Yeah. Exactly. Got, that, that was that same writer's festival where, uh, I have to describe this for the listeners, but there was an indoor swimming pool in this living room. And you and I were going through the buffet line. So this long row of tables and you really are inside. I mean, you, you have the sense that you're inside. You don't have the sense that there's a swimming pool anywhere nearby that's deep. And the long row of tables ends right where the swimming pool begins. It's like so <laughs> abrupt. And I'm going through the line in front of you. And we'd had a couple drinks, but nothing crazy. Yeah, and, it wasn't crazy. And uh, my ne- I, you saved me from like, I don't know whether you, you grabbed my the belt or the back that, of right? my shirt collar or what, but the next step would have just been unbelievable. So yeah, thank I do God remember you. that. That was good. You, there was also a very interesting sculpture. Remember that? Uh, the, what's that? There was some very interesting ice sculpture. Oh my party. God, that's right. Yeah, the uh, the ice sculptures, uh, there were there were dildo-shaped ice sculptures, which you don't see at every writer's festival. <laughs> I just didn't know what you could say on the <laughs> podcast. So yes, they were. So, But you're, you're a good man for saving me from falling into the swimming pool. Uh, you know, a it's lot of people would have let that happen and just enjoyed Oh, no, I would only do that to something I really wanted to laugh at. I don't think I knew you were that well at all. Yeah. Um, so I, I I want to talk a little bit more about your book to film success, because most writers, and you know we've had a few writers on the show here, and most writers I know, the, the, the usual story is, yeah, I sold the book option, there have been a few scripts written, and nobody really likes the scripts very much, and the whole thing's kind of stalled for a few years. You've had Shutter Island with Scorsese starring DiCaprio, Mystic River, which we mentioned, Gone Baby Gone, Live by Night. I mean, what, what's all the, how those experiences been? They've been great. I mean, they've been great. I, I think, look, there's one thing I'll take credit, uh, credit for. I don't take credit for much, but the one thing I can take credit for is I've had a rule that I will only sell my books to fellow artists who I respect. I don't sell them to studios. I just don't do it. So I sold, um, I sold, Mr. Grever to Clint Eastwood and Malpaso Productions. And then he made out deal, his deal with Warners and whoever else. Hmm. I sold um, Shutter Island to Mike Metaboy, who's a producer whose work I loved. I sold Gone Baby Gone to Alan Ladd Jr., who produced um, Blade Runner, which is probably my favorite film. You know, so I I, I was very specific. Then you, you know that you've gotten involved with A people as in capital letter A, as opposed to B people or C people or D people or, or, or a huge question mark, which is a studio. And then you just put your trust in them, yeah. which is what I've done. And stay out of their way. I, I really... Well, so I you don't get involved too much in the screenwriting of these films? No, I did for the drop, but that was it. Otherwise, I do... Uh, here's my cell. Here's my cell number. If you need me, call me. If you don't, I'll see you at the premiere, man. I mean, I'm, I'm cool. Because yeah. I, I, I don't think it's good to be breathing down the neck of the creatives who are working on your adaptation. So uh, Brian Hugelin, who wrote uh, the adaptation of Mr. Gwibber, he contacted me near the very end. Uh, Lita Calagridis, same thing. 
uh, Shutter Island. I read a, her first major draft, not that probably like her third draft. And I remember reading it and being like, looks good to me. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's fine with me. I asked her to change one line. That was it. And you, you view it as a, it's a different product. It's not your book. It's, it's a, a different artistic expression, but I mean, how invested do you feel in, you know, wanting to see it, I don't know, reflect your, your aims for the novel? You, what you want is you want, uh, the, you want the spirit of the book to be put on the screen. You know, so you, you got to throw out 80% of a book to get it into a, a two hour screenplay. So uh, you're not going to get a literal translation. What you're hoping is that the essence of the of the book, the message of the book, if you will, the theme of the book shows up on the screen. And that's pretty much what I've gotten. So even if, you know, there was there was the uh, Shutter Island It's hard to remember this now, but Shutter Island was a very divisive movie, critically. Um, the, some critics really liked it. Some critics hated it beyond measure Mm. and i remember when i was reading those reviews saying okay that's fine cool because you know you're hating it for the right reasons you're not hating it because they took they did a really bad version of my book and i'm getting blamed it's like no you're blaming exactly what i did with the book so that's fine i'm I'm, i don't exist to to make critics happy but i don't want to be misinterpreted right at the same time that makes sense so amid all this this success with the novels and the adaptions and the and the writing for TV, you also have been doing some teaching. I, I read. Uh, oh no, I stopped. I stopped. You, stopped. you have because taught stopped. a fiction writing course at oh. Harvard, which apparently is very popular with students. It was. It was. I had a great. It was at Harvard Extension, which is uh, you get older students, which is what I wanted, mm-hmm. um, and it was wonderful because I was tired of teaching undergrads. Here's what you get when you teach adult students: you get people who know why they're in the room. Mm-hmm. which is important. They're in the room because they want to learn how to write. They're not in the room because it just, they just had to take a class. Mm-hmm. They're not in the room because they're thinking maybe, oh, they'll try this writing thing. No, you get people who show up and they're there because all they all they want is to become a writer. Yeah. That That's an exciting group to teach. So right. that was the those were the best classes I ever taught, which I, I, those night classes I taught it. At I can't remember which Woody Allen movie it is, but there's a line that's like, adult education, it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> that's my uh, that's my Woody for the for, yeah. for today's conversation, uh, but it's true when people are seeking. I, I mean, I was a I was a moron in college. I was taking the path of least resistance. So you would not have wanted me as a student in my undergrad right. days. But how, how did you approach the teaching? Like, what, what what could a student, an adult student, expect to learn? And what was your approach to teaching fiction writing? Well, all right, you come to me if you. I can't give you passion. I can't give you fire in, in, in your belly. I can't give you the ability to handle rejection. Can't give you any of those things. All I can give you is a toolbox. Pretty much it. You know, I can teach you how to use a hammer. I can, a literary hammer. I can teach you how to use a literary bandsaw. I can teach you how, you know, I can do all that. And that's it. That's what I do. And, um, I, I can't give you an ear. So, for example, I was born with an ear. That's, I think everybody's born with one gift. And my gift was I had an ear. I could Everything or on. dialogue or just, just what yeah. sounds right? An ear means dialogue. An ear means the ability to hear the way people speak, really speak, and put it on the page in a way that jumps, in a way that's vibrant. Richard Price has a great ear. Um, Elmore Leonard had a great ear. Uh so I had a I had a good ear for sure. Um, you can't teach that to somebody, and that can be a problem sometimes. When you see people who just write wooden dialogue, you're like, oh man, like, <laughs> okay, start taking a subway somewhere and just listen to the way people talk. But you can't, you know, you can't guarantee it. So you just teach them things like, here's how to write a clean sentence. Here's how to make, um, here's how to make action move on the page. Action be in the pursuit of something. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you give them basics like, you know, there's the, the tension of a story is usually between what a character wants and what a character needs. You know, that's mm-hmm. the, stuff like that. And then, Do you think, is does the 10,000 hours thing apply to someone who doesn't, you know, they show up, they don't really have the ear, they don't have the feel for moving the pace and the action along. Can they develop that? Or do you think some people just have it or they don't have it and they're, they're not? Well, they got to be, a, they have to be open though. That's where you're talking about the fire in the belly. That's, you end up talking about motive. Why are you doing this? Are you doing this because you're looking for a reason to self-actualize? Well, it's probably not going to work out real well. Are you doing it because you can't stop? Then you're probably on the right track. Mm-hmm. It's just something in you has to express. It has mm-hmm. to, okay, I can work with you. I can work with you. And then it just becomes like any other 
profession, I think. It becomes the people who the people who have the right mindset and want it bad enough and are willing to put in the ten thousand hours, mm-hmm. they are gonna probably do okay. Yeah. I remember talking to you those that I think at that same uh, event and you were saying if you have a period of days where you don't write or even a day when you don't write, you get a little antsy, a little little off kilter. You know, you really it's it's like something you you tend to want to get to. I yeah, I don't like not writing. I I don't know why people take vacations. I don't know why people retire. I, I I'm you ask my wife. I'm no walk in the park when I'm on a vacation because I'm always just kind of like okay. Uh, we just played tennis. We did the beach thing. Um, and like I, yeah, you yeah. know, so uh, it's I really need to I need to be doing something that's creative. I wonder if we can take a moment and you can help the listeners and me understand a little bit of the the business side and artistic side of how a show gets made. And and maybe we could take Mr. Mercedes as an example, which is a trilogy by Stephen King. Mm -hmm. So how does something go from book all the way to on the streamers, you know, screen for someone to watch at home? Like, so Sonar Entertainment takes the option on Mr. Mercedes. Yeah. I I don't know if Mercedes is the best one because that's David Kelly it started with David. So David knows the whole behind the scenes before he brought me in. I don't really, mm-hmm. um, Steven knows it more than I do. I mean, I think the, or blackbird or what, what's a good example. Blackbird, Blackbird's a bad, real bad. Cause I was granular on that. I was from the beginning to the end. Okay. So blackbird was an example of, they had a book called in with the devil, which was a memoir. Um, and tells the true story of a guy named Jimmy Keene who, uh, uh, allowed himself to be transferred to a maximum security prison, uh, tried to befriend a guy they suspected was a serial killer, and get a reduction of uh, actually a commutation of his sentence if he could get the man to confess where he'd buried two of his bodies. So that story came to me the weekend you and I met. I was listening to it on tape. I drove to across the Palm Desert listening to it on 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 tape and. Uh, made the decision right when I reached uh, where our writers conference was um, uh, right when I got there, I said, okay, I'll do it. Cause I figured out why I wanted to do it and what it was about. Called them. It was at HBO at the time called HBO said, I'll do it. Came back, started writing scripts. Um, then ultimately HBO got to the point where it was about to go into production and that can be a very dangerous time. So and who, who the took time. the option or did someone just buy oh, the rights. So outright. the option on it was owned by um, Alexander Milchin uh, and uh, her company, plus uh, um, Bradley Thomas and his company, uh, which is Imperative Entertainment. So, so they had the option. And they, were they the money? So, so just so listeners know, like the option basically means you have the rights. No one else can buy the rights to it out from under you. You have the right to buy it for a year. And, and they had it for your... 10 years. They were trying to push that rock up the hill for 10 years, is what I heard. Originally, it had once been conceived as a movie for Leo and uh, Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Um, it, so they kept renewing uh, the uh, option for, for 10 years? They kept renewing the option. And then I think it was at around the eighth year that I came in. And then that's when we set it up at HBO. Or they set it up at HBO. And then, and then HBO finally, right as we were about to go into production, said, you know what? We don't want this. And I was like, oh, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> but I was under contract to HBO. They allowed me to carve out of my contract, and they allowed me to go over and take the project to Apple. Mm-hmm. So I took the project to Apple. Uh, we sold it in a weekend. Richard Plepler then came in, who used to run HBO, who's now um, on his own. He sold it to Apple. Um, I came on board. I finished uh, all the scripts. And then – So are you, we- are you like what – someone would call a showrunner at this point. I'm a showrunner. Show show for... The showrunner. And, and, but who, uh, who ultimately bought the rights? Apple then? Apple buys the rights. Okay. They're the ones who paid Jimmy King. Ballpark, an option is how much money and then, and not not specifically for this project, oh, but just in general. A, that's a, I've heard options are in from anywhere from $1,000. This an option is rent. Look at it this mm-hmm. way. We're going to rent your book for six months or we're going to rent your book for a year. And during that time, nobody can move into that apartment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately it's an option to buy and when they buy, it tends to be much bigger numbers. So I've heard of options that start at say a thousand dollars and then the payoff is say a hundred thousand dollars. And I've heard options that start at 
$10,000, $5,000, and the payoff is $2 million. And it's a little yeah. less for a show as opposed to feature film, or at least in the old days. Yeah, feature which is strange. Film. I never understood that. But yes, it's less for a TV show than it is for a feature film. Except I've heard uh, if your show keeps getting renewed, because you get you sort of get paid by the episode, uh, the writer does, you know, for, for their book or something. So if it, if it has a six-season run or a 10-season run, that actually might be more money? I think so. But I think so. But has somebody as somebody who's never had their books optioned for TV, mm-hmm. I don't know the nitty gritty of that. Yeah. You know, I know the nitty gritty of my side of it, which is I produced it. I know what I make as a producer. I know what I make as a writer. Mm-hmm. I know what I make in terms of residuals. But, you know, it just depends. So you're you're showrunner. And then are you responsible for hiring, you know, costume designers and creating the everybody. writer's room and all that? Everybody. You do, but there was no writer's room really on this one. There was a small one. We had a two-week writer's room, but um, then I just blasted away on the script. So it was not really that type of story, but or that type of show. But um, but once we went into production, um, Taryn was chosen by committee. uh, Taryn Edgerton, uh, I mean, um, yeah, Taryn Edgerton is the star. He was chosen by committee. It was that being me, Bradley Thomas. Alexandra, Apple, and uh, Richard and Carrie, all the all the producers. We came mm-hmm. we came in on Taryn. Then we went and got Paul. From that point on, I cast everybody in the show. And does Apple and, give you a budget on how much you can spend on acting talent and sets and yep, on location shooting and all that sort of thing? They sure do. They sure do. Uh, yes, they do. And they gave us a budget. And then I remember right before we were heading off to Louisiana to shoot the show, they were like, actually, we gave you too much. We would dial that back a little bit. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, dear. So um, you, I mean, as showrunner, you're, you've got a P&L to run, too. You're, are you keeping track of all the accounting on this stuff as well? No, there's, there's, a, there's an accountant. There's, there's, we have people who handle all that. That's what a unit production manager is. That's what a, a, I, I'm the showrunner. I am in charge of making the show run. Mm-hmm. It's literally that simple. So I go off and I hire the art department and I hire the set designers and I hire all those people. Um, they then hire the people right below them. And then those people hire the people below them. Cause mm-hmm. there's like 200 people totally. I'm not in charge of hiring all them. Then I cast, I discovered how much I loved casting. Casting was the biggest joy to me. It was the biggest joyful surprise to me of this mm-hmm. project. I love doing it. I would go home at night and just sit and drink you know, yeah. a little Chopin on ice and watch, uh, watch video, uh, uh zooms, uh, or video recorded videos of people auditioning for parts. That's it. So was that, do you think that was connected to your ear for dialogue that you could sort of see these actors do something and, and imagine them in the role or not? I, I, I don't know if it was that so much as I, what helped with doing it on video as opposed to sitting in a room was to me, it felt like far more close to seeing somebody on camera. Mm-hmm. And, um, no, I just like going over it and over it and over it. Something that Ben Affleck said to me, which he learned from one of his, people who directed him before he became a director, the secret to directing is casting every single part as if it's the lead. And I was, and it's true because your instinct is to say, well, that guy's only in like half, half, 35 seconds of a scene. Why do we, why do we have to cast him seriously? So somebody else do it. I'd be like, no way. Like, I found this actor to play a gas station attendant in the fifth episode of the show. And I was like, this kid could do anything. This kid could be on Broadway doing fences if he wanted to, or, or, you know, a soldier's play. I mean, he's the, he was a great actor. And I was like, so he needs work, make him the gas station attendant. And I made him the gas station attendant. And he was fantastic. He's just, the point is, is never to feel as if you're taken out of the scene and you're just in it, you're living it. And this kid felt, he gave a lived-in performance of a guy who works at a gas station. So that was, to me, that was that was easily the most fun out of the entire process. That's interesting. It might be one of those, as a, as a viewer of the show, it's those little things. You don't understand why you're loving a show or why it's working for you, but it's probably those little things you're not taking immediate notice of that make the difference. Yeah. you. What you understand is when you're pulled out. Not when you're kept in. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, you're like, where they find this guy, or where they find that? Why is that shot in here? Yeah. I don't think anything that really calls too much attention to itself in what I do. 
So you're one of the writers that you might be the only writer I can think of who's had really big success both writing the novel and writing for TV and writing for film. And I know you've, you've sort of toggled back and forth a bit. And I think the last time I saw you, you're like, you know, I'm, I'm done with the novels, at least for a while. I just writing the writing a, a pilot is easier and quicker and, you know, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Um, social, too. It's more social. It's a lot more social. Being a writer is being in a room alone by yourself, sometimes for years. Like, it's awful. Like, I, I just got really tired of it. I, I don't think I'm, I'm a pretty social guy. So I was just kind of like, I like, I also don't like taking my work home with me as a parent. And when I write novels, I tend to be too focused. When I don't write work on TV shows, I can, I can go pick my kids up at school. I can drop them off in the morning. I, I just did this morning. I, I can live my life a little bit more presently. And is it more social because you're, you're, interacting with other writers in sort of a writer's room environment or because you're interacting with all the other elements that go into making a show or both? It, it both. It both. It started, it, it, it occurred to me when I did my first TV show, The Wire. Oh, this is fun. I like sitting around talking with people. Yeah. Then I went on, on to do Boardwalk Empire and I literally lived in Brooklyn and would go to work every day and have water cooler conversations. And I was like, this is what people are talking about? Like I'd never... I, my yeah. adult life has been spent in a room writing by myself. Yeah. So I just started to really like it. And George Pelicanos, who who also followed a similar career, he loves sets. He loves, he calls himself a set rat. Um, I really started to uh, take to it. And then when we did the show, obviously when I was doing Mr. Mercedes, but then particularly when I was doing Blackbird, I was like, I love this. Mm -hmm. I love this. I was terrified of what it was going to be like to run a show. And I found out I loved it. Because when you do a novel, here's a perfect example. You do a novel. Everybody I know has ever written a novel. We all say the same thing. The middle is the dreaded middle. It's the valley of darkness. you got to go through it. Everything that you will find out that you misconceived in the opening of a novel will appear in the middle of a novel. That's where you drag. That's where you stall. That's where you go, oh, what am I doing? The beginnings are usually pretty fun. The endings are usually pretty fun. The middles are awful. Mm -hmm. You go through the middle 100% alone. Alone. Nobody can get you through it. When everything went wrong on our on this film, on the TV show, and things go wrong on any production, I had tons of people I could call. I had tons of people there to buck me yeah. up. I had people saying, yeah, we think he's an a-hole too. You know, like whatever it was. You know, we're going to get through this, you know. Um it's, it wasn't lonely at all, and I liked it. I liked it. So sticking with the novel for a sec, what, what is your process there? Are you outlining ahead of time? How, how do you, you know, this middle thing makes me makes me wonder, how do you sort of, writers I've talked to are, are all over the board on this. Some outline a lot and then write it. Some feel like outlining is going to take something away and they don't outline. Some write the first draft without an outline and then do an outline before the second draft. How, how do you do it? I've done, I've done, the most I've done, I don't believe in outlines. It, I'm with the, who, the camp that says it takes something away. It, it, it boxes you in corners where you can't be creatively spontaneous. You gotta, writing is a little bit like jazz. You gotta be able to, mm -hmm. to know when to follow the, you know, the note. Right. Um, but, uh, I don't usually outline every now and then I'll write something up. Like I think, you know, like shut around and I wrote up a page, small mercies. I wrote up a page, and then otherwise, it's it's right near the end of a book. I'll be like, usually the first draft. I'll I'll usually write like an, uh, how many beats do I have left? And I'll write that down. And I remember doing this for Mystic River very specifically. And I had like eight major things left that had to happen. And the book had, when I finished, I realized I'd written eight more chapters. Hmm. Like, I was like, oh, wow, cool. Okay. But by that point, you know exactly what you're doing. It's like the beginning, you're like driving a car across ice. You know, it's just, it's just whatever. You know, you don't know where you're going exactly. By the end, you're on a train and you're on tracks. And you're going, it's it's going well, straight. Is that always how it goes? Or have you ever gotten halfway or near the end and said, you know what, this is just not working. Bottom drawer it. Um, I've gotten uh, a third of the way into one book that I, I shelved 
Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I fight the good fight. I just keep fighting and fighting and fighting and saying, I'll get through it, I'll get through it, I'll get through it. There was one time a book just kept looking back at me and going, no, you won't. <laughs> no. Are you ever like switching from first person to third person or, you know, trying things? I did, it in, short, I did it in my best short story. I've only written seven, but um, the one that's kind of universally acknowledged as my best, I woke up the day after I wrote it and I said, it should be in second person. And I, I'd never written anything in second person. And mm-hmm. I just got up and I wrote, I wrote, went through the entire file and just changed all the eyes to use. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it worked. The story worked. So I was like, that's it. But I've never done it for a novel. And then just staying on process, do you, are you a morning guy, coffee guy? Morning. Morning now. Yeah. Morning. Um, morning became a, 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 a locked in thing after I had kids. Mm-hmm. You know, you used to be able to stay up all night, write not have to worry about getting up and dealing with kids, but mm-hmm. now I'd get up and deal with kids. So, yeah. So like a few hours and then, and then you yeah. are burned yeah. out. Or? I think the, the important thing is, is not word count. I know people who can do word count. I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, the important thing is time. So you should be able to at least block out. You should be able to, even a working person who luckily I don't have a nine to five job anymore, but even a working person should be able to block out one hour a day. And that one hour is huge. It's huge. If you can do it consistently, you'll get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do three, usually do three. Yeah. That's it. That's not a bad work day. Yeah. And, and what is that? I mean, I'm sure it's all over the board, but is that a thousand yeah. words, 3000 words? Well, I don't know. 500. I, I really, I'm the one who can say I've sat around tons of writers who will say, I write 1000 words. I write, 900 words whatever mm-hmm. i'm like sometimes all i get is a sentence mm-hmm. but if it's a good sentence i'm great with it and sometimes i rip sometimes i do like i do i've had days where i've written 12 pages days once where i my longest ever was 16 pages so i don't know what that word count is but that's a lot of pages yeah um but but then i've had plenty of days where it's like hey i got a paragraph yeah well what about on the tv side i mean could you sort of do a pilot in a fever dream and in a day or what's your process there i could do a pilot but i i could do a rewrite one of the things that happens i'll give you a a perfect example when i was on mr mercedes and david said after david kelly said after a certain point he was just like i want you to just take this just take it and run with it you know season one i just took it and ran with it after he wrote the first two episodes and then i pretty much you know was running the the writers from that point on do you try to map to his dialogue style it's a, a I, I'm always interested no, to just, see these shows that have different writers per episode, and it tends to flow. Like the characters still, yeah. you know, they they manage to make it seamless. David does a great job of he set up his characters. So you know, he added this character Ida, who's not in the books, and he he set up this world that was recognizable as David Kelly does Stephen King, not so much Stephen King as there was. It was very much kind of picket fences meets you know Mr. Mercedes kind of feel. And once he did that, then. Okay, we are now within those characters I get to play. And then I had the book. And then I had my own ideas about where I thought I could go with the book that Stephen didn't go because he didn't have necessarily the, the breath that I had. And um and then I just started to play. But one of the things that I realized when I was doing that show was I was rewriting like crazy because you're rewriting to production. That happens a lot. They call you up and they say, you know, we we will run out of time, or we don't have the weather to do this, or uh, we've done too many car shots or, you know, so my old, my friend has an old line, uh, everything sooner or later becomes interior kitchen day because that's the easiest thing to shoot. And we used to have interior that on bloodline. Day, have, right. on bloodline. We'd be on bloodline and they'd be like, we can't shoot on a boat. And we'd be like, what do you mean we can't shoot it? We're bloodline. We take place in the keys. And they were like, yeah, we can't do a boat for this episode. We're like, damn. So it'd be, all right, how are we moving into interior kitchen day? So you're doing a lot of that. That causes a lot of rewriting, and you get that. That's the ten thousand hours feel. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd hear about the Stones doing, you know, playing those clubs nonstop, um, and the Beatles in Berlin playing those clubs nonstop. They, it, it's once you're doing it a lot, it tends to become. Then you, then somebody suddenly says to you, "We need to completely rewrite episode seven. Mm-hmm. No problem. It's literally no problem." You're so in the groove that you can rewrite the seventh episode from top to bottom in a couple of days. 
Would you ever have a like a quick strategy call with with uh, David Kelly saying, you know, I'm thinking about you're playing around with these characters, but maybe I'm going to kill this one or these two are going to have sex or something's going to happen over here. Would you go back and say, hey, something major I'm toying with, but I um, you know, got to yeah, talk there was about one it. Big one. There was one big one I remember quite well. Um, and that happened. And then the other one I remember, which was this is me and David, we realized in the second season, we realized at the 11th hour that the last three episodes as conceived weren't going to work. And it was, a, it, it's just too complicated to get into why, but it was, a, it was a bombshell. And I called him and I said, we got to figure this out. You know, can, can I come to your office? And he was like, yeah, head on over. And I came to his office and we reboarded the entire three episodes in under 30 minutes. And I was like, this is what it's like to work with a pro. Like, this is great. You know? he, he recognized right away what you were talking about, what wasn't going to work. Oh, his mind for TV. He knows more. It's it's a cliche. He knows more about TV than any of us. have. He's forgotten more about TV than any of us ever knew. Right. He knows so much. His his ability, you know, the, the guy's written, like, I think his assistant once told me it was something like 1,400 scripts. It was something crazy. 1,400 hours of television. It was nuts. It's amazing. But, I was just watching something recently. I can't remember the name of the show, but it was David E. K. And you know there's like there's a brand association. It's going to be quality. The writing's going to be good. The story's going to work. Exactly. It's going to draw you in. Oh, he's, he's he 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 and I've been working on a project for years, and he came in to see my idea for it. This is about six months ago, and he walked in. He like stared at the board for a couple of minutes, and he was like, "Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and move this over there." And then we'll, yeah, that'll work. And I looked at it, and I was like, "Damn!" Like, yeah, you're right. You know, like I've been doing this a long time, but he could just come in and look at it. And mm-hmm. oh, it's yeah, interesting so it's to hear how how a writer's room can work that way. The, the team writing thing always makes me wonder. But I guess, you know, you can go off and write your scripts and come back and, and it all pieces together. But Well, sooner or later, it has to go through a filter. That's what I learned on The Wire, and that's the truth. So it's coffee going through a filter. It's the water going through a coffee filter, right? The coffee filter on The Wire was David Simon and Ed Burns. So every script, whether I'm credited with it, George is credited with it, Richard Price was credited with it. In the end of the day, it went through their filter mm-hmm. because that unifies the voice. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Bloodline, it was the Kesslers and uh, Boardwalk Empires, Terry Winter. Um, so uh, I was the filter for a lot of Mr. Mercedes. I was the filter for all of Blackbird. Mm-hmm. You know, it just has to go. I, it, it, You can give me a script. It can be a really good script, but it will not be untouched by the time it gets produced. And what, it, what is go. your filtering process then? Are you you changing words and dialogue just to make it sound more consistent with the character? Or what, what kind of edits are you make? Is that there's that or there's a sense of tone you don't know tone like the way i know tone if i'm doing the entire show like Mm -hmm. there's a tone to a show and you're like that's tonally off that's not the type of joke we tell that's not that whatever you just you tweak it you tweak it and um and then there's a whole other thing that happens in editing Mm -hmm. you know when you go into the editing bay and all of a sudden you start going nope that doesn't cut that trim that come around that one a different way let's reorder um, we reordered the entire pilot of Blackbird, I think three months into editing. And we we're just like, why isn't this working? And finally, I was just like, I think the order's off. And we reordered the first 15 minutes of the show. And then it was like, voila, there it is. You got to like these co writers, though, I guess, right? Or, or it doesn't yeah. matter. Oh, I think it totally matters. I don't, I don't, I don't want any writers in my room I don't like. Yeah. If that's, you know, I got a room right now and we're all tight and it's, life's too short man yeah I feel not, the not same to out anything but have you been in a dysfunctional writer's room before where things <laughs> yeah, hit the I've wall been a few of them. Yeah. yeah i've been in a few of them um i've never been in a nasty one i'll say that i've been in dysfunctional ones but i've never been in nasty ones and i've heard stories about them and my jaw drops really people talk to each other that way like i've, I've never personally never experienced it mm-hmm. uh a guy i ran into once said that's because you've been on good shows it's the bad shows, the really bad shows where people are mean to each other. Yeah, e- like, easier oh. to be in the winning locker room, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Or or you are somehow feel like you've got imposter syndrome because you're getting paid to write really bad. I don't mm. know. Hard to so what, what's an example of dysfunctional, though? Something um, dysfunctional, okay. Um, dysfunctional would be too many writers in the room. You know, like uh, I've seen writers' rooms that are huge and you're like, how many opinions do we need here? Um, 
writers' rooms where people are fear-based. And so you see a lot of, um, you'll see like somebody build up an episode and, and you're like, okay, that works. Go write it. And then they'll tear it down again. And then they'll build it up again. And then they'll tear it down again. And then they'll build it up again. And then they'll tear it down again. You're like, just write it. Just write the damn thing and we'll fi- we'll figure it out. Like if it doesn't work, we'll know when we see the script. So I've seen stuff like that, yeah. but I've never seen vitriolic ones the nasty ones that that has escaped me so far yeah well when i last saw you which i guess maybe around 2017 give or take you were loving the tv right oh no it was 20 no it was just before covid we, we were i know i know very specifically when it was it was uh the end of it was the beginning of 2019 okay january 19th god I, you know it's yeah, all january a time 19th. warp for me i can't keep yeah. keep track so i know covid really messed up all our senses of time i think well, that makes this next question even more interesting. So as, as recent as early 19, you were really enjoying the TV writing and had kind of, at least for a time, sworn off a novel. And yet you, in April 2023, yeah. have publication day for your, your upcoming novel, Small Mercies. How did, how did that come about? Well, this is why I don't understand my mind, and I, I'm not pretty sure I, I don't want to, uh, for... <laughs> For four years, I've been unable to write prose. I, I could write scripts, but I couldn't write prose to save my life. And I was trying. I was really trying, and it wasn't working. I go to New Orleans to shoot this TV show. I'm petrified. Um, I've never run a TV show soup to nuts before. It's COVID. We've got outbreaks, you know, all over the place. Slammed us the production to a close twice. We've got daily lightning strikes, it seems like, that are shut, shutting down production. We've got a lot of inner conflict. We've got a lot of things going wrong. Um, and somehow in all of that, I started to write a novel. And I would write it at night, and I would write it in my trailer between setups, and I would write it in the morning, and I would just write, 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 like I was in college again. It was amazing. And part of it is because it's about something I've always wanted to write about, which is the busing crisis in Boston in 1974. Um, which was the uh, the desegregation of the Boston Public Schools caused the city to explode. And part of it, I think, was I needed to break my mind away from the production. So I was kind of probably writing for reasons that I first started writing, which was to step out of my world. I think that's why most people become writers. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't quite function in the world in which they live their daily lives. So they imagine, they create. And I was, I think, just trying to give myself a break from the the stresses of producing a TV show. And I wrote a whole book. So are you with the same editor and agent and everything? I'm not with the same editor. My my first editor is long since gone, but I'm with the exact same publisher. I've been with HarperCollins since 1995, under some way, shape, or form. Okay. First, I was with William Morrow from the very beginning, and then they were purchased by HarperCollins, and then I've been with them. You know, so it's so. When years have left. passed by without a novel from Dennis Lehane in sight, did you call them up from in, amidst lightning strikes and say, "Hey, there's one on the way"? Or how did that go down? No, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody until it was almost done. Um, I didn't think it was going to help. I didn't want to. I didn't want to freak everybody out and then watch it. Watch me collapse. You know, like I, I'm superstitious enough. I was like, no, let me just. Once I was pretty sure. Like I was, I think I was two thirds in. And I was like, okay. I, this book's going to work. Yeah, I think I let I let them in because I know that I had a new editor. Um, so I had an editor forever. She left. I did one book with Dan Halpern. He left, and then I got this new editor for this new uh, named Noah Eaker for this book. So I've had three editors in my entire life. Well, that's that's great. I, I am excited to read it. Um, Thank you. I I'm very excited book. about it. I think I wrote a good book. Oh, that's and, great. I mean, you're, yeah, you I, don't hear me say that much. I have no doubt you're uh, you're one of the best. So to end the show, we uh, mm-hmm. we do a quick lightning round of of fun questions, okay. and uh, yeah, I see you taking a sip, which I will do the same. Mm-hmm. Your favorite book as a kid? Three Musketeers. Nice. The book you're reading now? I'm reading the um, advanced copy. It's not out yet. It's not published yet. Of uh, all the sinners bleed. It's by S.A. Cosby, uh, who wrote Red Blade Tears. He's kind of the future of American crime fiction, in my opinion. So it's his next book. Favorite book festival? Uh, the Festival of Parati in Brazil. Not, have you been more than once? No. 
just been once. Why? I, so I, I have to follow up. Why is it your favorite? Brazil sounds interesting. It's gorgeous. It's uh, you. It's six. Is it? It's either. It's four or six hours from the nearest major city. And you have to go deep into colonial Brazil and you end up in this little tiny colonial. Uh, it's the biggest festival in South or Central America. And it's uh, you show up in this little tiny colonial town and it is filled, filled from one end to the other with book fanatics and fans and authors and journalists. And, and it's it's wonderful. It was well, I, I aspire to having one of my books published in Portuguese so I can go down to this thing that sounds good it was it was absolutely wonderful i loved it i did it in 2008 all right i hope they still do it next question even a big star like you was once not so uh you know back in the 90s you're selling books out of the trunk of your car and things like that the least attended book event you've ever put on (laughs) i did one in austin texas um and uh three people showed up one guy was just homeless and he was just trying to get out of the weather. And the other two people were there because they had the same last name and they wanted to know if we were related. <laughs> and then I said, so you guys don't expect me to read, do you? And they were like, well, yeah. And so I had to read to three people. <laughs> the, the guy easily could have been one of your cousins from Boston that you hadn't hadn't noticed. Yeah, could have, yeah. but that was, that was the one. That was a good one. All right. And last question. One piece of good advice on any topic. On any, t- yeah, easy. You got to do the work. However you want to define that, you have to do the work. You have to put in the hours. You have mm-hmm. to, you know, it just won't come. And I, and I'm somebody who has been in the middle of writing a novel, and looked at that novel, the pages of that novel, sitting on a table, and been like, why isn't it growing? And then been realized because you haven't written in two weeks. Like, oh, okay, that's it. You know, like, mm-hmm. so you just have to do it one step in front of the other, one step in front of the other. And I feel like that's true of most things. Yeah. That, well, you know, that's simply put, and it's because it's exactly right. Yeah. 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 So, well, Dennis, you thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to speak with you. Thank you. Okay. You too. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili wickdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wicknuggets fries and sprites ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go i participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last